Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. Here we are once again, West Point, <laughs> once Mississippi. Once again. Yeah, right. we've got, uh, looking around the room, we got straight from Puerto Rica. Get it right. Straight Coast, from Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Rica. Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we're glad you made it back in time yeah. to it join us. sounded like customs wasn't too fun for you. Mm. Not the best. Not the best. <laughs> Is there the, anybody you want to call out? Any names? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> I call out our buddy, Mr. Mike Bodner, yeah, for donating say, this yeah. trip that we bought at the charity auction at the Foxhole Fox shootout Hole. last year. It was incredible. What's uh, the name of the place? Uh, you talking about where we stayed? Yeah. Or, oh, um, I don't know. My, brain, my brain's not working. <laughs> Never mind. Because yeah. I didn't, as we told the story before this, I, I hadn't slept in almost, what, 40 hours now. Mm. Yeah. Missing, wow. missing a flight due to weather and other complications I coming back. I would be not in a good place. Yep. Well, we hope you stay awake. It's a Costa Rican. It's a place called Los Suenos. Los Suenos. And it is. <laughs> Sounds swanky. Well, it's just a, it's a fishing port, but it's really, it is extremely nice. You know what that means so, in English? Yeah, I don't know what. The Suenos. The Suenos. The Suenos. <laughs> ah. So my cousin is a travel agent and actually the, owns the one in Birmingham and has been in it for years and knows the world. And I asked him, I said, I bought this just to do something, you know, and take a fun trip with Diane and get to fish a couple of times, something I've never really done much of offshore like that. But uh, tell me about Costa Rica. He said, oh, it's magical. He said, but I'll tell you what you'll see about it. He said, the people are just delightful. And I'm telling you, if we met 50 or 75 people, all of them are just absolutely the nicest, sweetest, friendliest, you know, it's it's a pretty cool culture. It really is. Do you see any cool wildlife? Lots of cool wildlife. Lots of ones. Yeah. We'll see monkeys. In, that's that, we'll talk about <laughs> okay. that after. Sorry. This. Lenny, has anybody ever but described you as delightful? Uh, no, I don't <laughs> think what, so. What's it like? Maybe. What's it like going to a foreign place and not being able to identify all the trees, trees and plants yeah. around you? I thought about Dudley about a hundred times <laughs> because th- there's it is no resemblance. I took a bunch of pictures. I'll show Did you later. Yeah, Did you I'll, find an oak tree down there? Uh, they say there's some there, but I never saw one. Everything looked like an oak tree yeah. until you got up to it. Hmm. It's amazing. Wow, that's cool. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I mean, they had some trees I would say would be 60, 70, 80 dBH hmm. at Jeez. least. Yeah. Wow. And no telling how old they DBH, are. DBH, what are we talking about there? 
diameter at breast height, yeah. so Which four is, and a half feet off the ground. Basically, the diameter you would cut a log, mm-hmm. more or less, you know. Thank you, Mr. Know-It-All. Oh, yeah. Diameter was at that breast height. <laughs> I, I actually used to think it was diameter at butt height, but but the butt you're cutting, you know, of the tree, the, the, the back basal end of the log. basal area. Yeah. yeah, basal area is a totally different thing. Isn't it? it yep. is. Yes. So I, that's how look, many stems per acre. Right? Pretty much. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty complicated, actually, but it is the density. So if you per- took a cross section of the tree at four and a half feet, that's right, above the ground, the where you cut it off. What is the area of that cross section over the course of an acre? Right. That is. That's the DBH. The basal area. That's I mean, the basal, yeah, basal area. The DBH is simply the diameter at that height. Correct. Yep. There it is. There we go. And There's your forestry minute. 80-inch tree. And is I a, will have to double check that to make sure I'm not no, wrong. No, you're right. How's the champion tree going? Is it? It's still there. It's really looking good this year. Hopefully, it'll get a little extra growth. But You're gonna try and make them come back and remeasure it every year. Well, the I, they, they do every three years, but okay. June is supposedly when the when it comes. The book comes out. Oh, so we'll see. So you don't? They don't even tell you if you're going to be in the book. Uh, well, I, I would given the indication that the tree is going to be the co-champion. 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 So is that yeah. second place? Well, it means there's one tied with it. So, with <laughs> you know, Bobby's going to expect a parade down oh, yeah. Main Street if we'll, he we'll, gets named. We'll give it to him. Yeah. yeah. So, look, let's turn this thing back around. Please, All please. of uh, Sorry, quarter, uh, Costa Rica and DBH and breast height. And we typically not- have a good five, ten-minute ADD session when we start <laughs> these things a lot yeah, of times. Typically. Yeah, Actually, yeah. the politically correct term is now ADHD. Yes, which would be me for sure. <laughs> I just got HD. What you think? <laughs> you got it all. No <laughs> doubt about it. No, I'm looking at Hank Parker in the house. Can we get the horns, yeah, please? No doubt. He's one of our favorite people. Yes. And he you, resembles. Whoa, 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 whoa. All of us? Are you, are you speaking for me? I, too? I'm not speaking for you. He, 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 <laughs> I thought he's one of your favorite people. He probably is my favorite person. There we go. He, he, what, what a guy. So not even, yeah. Is there anybody? I mean, Okay, let's part with well, the I've, fox lived, I've lived long enough now to say we go way back. It took a while. <laughs> yeah. Is there another hunter slash fisherman slash gamekeeper that has more respect? It's parking Mr. Fox over here than Hank Parker. I can't no, think of one. No, no. Uh, I'm totally lost for words. I don't even know what to say. I, no, no, no question. I, it's the, there's one other one runs alongside of him, and you told me years ago that Kevin was like that because I didn't yeah. really know Kevin. He said, "I'm telling you, he's just like one of y'all, and he's just like he'd rather be a gamekeeper than fish just about. He's like that passionate about it." Turns out you were right. You're speaking of Kevin Van Dam. Oh yeah. I tell people without a doubt, Kevin Van Dam is the best fisherman that ever lived. There's never been a better competitor. People say, I did this, I did that. I'm not in Kevin's league. He is in his own league. He's unbelievable. Is he just that intense? Does his homework that much? I mean, what sets You know, him I fished with him the first time back in the old days when Erwin uh, Jacobs with FLW had me kind of analyze the fisherman. Yeah. And the first time I fished with Kevin, and I just watched him observed, I thought, boy, if this kid would ever slow down, (laughs) he's going to be awesome. But he fishes too fast. And you've got to be able to digest. When you're practicing, 
you really have to be able to digest everything you're collecting. And, and you, there's a process for yeah. that and there's a mental process and he's out running that process in my opinion. And so I'm watching this. And then the next time I fished with him, I realized that rascal is that fast mentally. Mm-hmm. He's not only a physical speedster, He's sharp as a tack, and he was able to process that at a speed that is like Superman, faster than the speed of light. I couldn't keep up with him. And so for me, he was fishing way too fast. But for him, no, he was right in the groove, man. Mm -hmm. He was able to process all that. Uh, fishing 90, like his hair was on fire. Wow, getting after it. Unbelievable. So I have – Tremendous respect for his ability. Mm-hmm. You know, we had one podcast with him, and that's all he wanted to talk about was gamekeeping. Yeah. And plots. <laughs> and turkey hunting and deer hunting and even duck hunting. That's all, that's all yeah, he wanted to talk about. And he had a good answer for every question we had. Sure did. Well, Hank, we've talked to you before and, and, you know, tried to figure out if you like hunting or fishing best. And, and <laughs> we understand your answer. Turkeys in April. Deer in November, and the rest of the time you're going to be fishing. That's right. We got mm, you left a few out, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not going to talk. That's about his that. official we'll, we'll statement. That's the official statement. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to keep somebody on board. We got to be politically yes. correct. You know, you That's can't right. get in a bind with your fishing sponsors when you say stuff like, "Well, the only reason I fish is to make enough money to go hunting." You know, that kind of <laughs> is offensive. Yeah, well, as long as you're making them money too, they're happy about it. So. <laughs> There's never been a better spokesman for the outdoors and the sport, though. There's no question. How did how did look? I want to go way back and just start with a very basic question. How did you get into fishing? And you, do you remember your first bass? And what made you say I, I want to be a pro bass fisherman? You know, I understand why kids lie, and, and because you can't even embellish enough to describe the feeling it is that you have the outdoor. It the truth is just so under estimating how you really feel and i was captured by fishing it didn't matter how big he was i mean i just would get lost when i was a kid our all the kids in the neighborhood would go down to the pond and everybody fish 15 minutes and then they're they're getting down to their skinnies and going going swimming man i'd fish all day long i just absolutely loved it and then when I started squirrel hunting, man, when the first couple of squirrels I killed, you thought I'd kill a puna crocodile deer. My heart was beating out of my chest, man. It's it just, and I, I hadn't got over that. I still hadn't got over that. People ask me all the time, say, well, have you gone to Africa? Have you done? I know I don't have to. I, I still get just as big a thrill as I got when I was a kid. And, and so I, I love it. And I, I don't understand it all. But I've just always been fascinated with the outdoors. And uh, there's nothing. People say, well, man, I went to the World's Fair. Well, man, I get to go to Disney World. That is nothing. That is absolutely nothing compared to being on the bank of a river and letting God paint the most incredible sunrise, a little steam coming off the water. You can have it. Amen. Mm-hmm. Man, mm-hmm. give me the woods. And uh, I feel that way when I, I felt that way when I was a kid, and I feel that way now. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's such a gift for everybody to hear. Just reminded me of Daniel's comment that hit me like a bolt of lightning. Because we get to go be a kid again, you know. Yeah, Dudley just talked about That's it. Right. I was listening to some of the podcasts coming and going, Dudley talking about it. You know, well, turkey still mess you up oh, to this yeah. day. Just like – but you go back and you're that kid again. But Daniel talked about never lose that sense of wonderment. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he's talking about. 
Toxie and I did something that was pretty incredible once. We called a turkey that flew across the river. And uh, that turkey gobbled 50 times or 60 times on the other side of the river. We really didn't think he was going to fly the river. But we continued to call. That turkey flew the river and landed right in front of us. And in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just happened to be pointed in the right direction. But you didn't have to say a word. The, the look on his face and the vibes was communicating that was so incredibly special. Not only the turkey flying river, the whole experience. We're on a beautiful place, incredible turkey woods on an incredible morning with a wild turkey goblin that just sends a thrill down your, your, your spine that you can't explain. But he didn't have to say a word. Mm-mm. The vibes of how much he appreciated that and I felt exactly the same way. So the camaraderie that you build, it's just incredible. And when somebody has the same feeling and respect that you have for what you appreciate, it's just a very special bond. And that's how he and I got to be such good friends. And it wasn't what we said. It was just the emotion that was involved that you understood it was body language that mm-hmm. never said a word. But you know, how people say that, you know, there's a chemistry. Mm-hmm. You just <laughs> different people. They just kind of don't have a chemistry. Some people, they just, just, just do. And it, like you said, without saying a word, it's been very special. And, uh, you know, not that, and I read some of the reviews too. Now, and I've got accused of being preachy about some of this. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be defensive about it, but I, I probably shouldn't preach, be preachy about it. I just want people to be able to have their own personal, not mine, not his, um, feelings, relationship, be able to see those things, touch those things, carry them around with them. Because the, the, the connection we have over hunting and outdoors, and especially that magic in the spring, that seasonal rebirth. What we experience together, nobody can ever take it away from us, no matter what. And it's such a gift. And that's kind of what we're trying to point. Sometimes just trying to point people and look, don't even find it in your own way. But Hank's guy, he hit the nail on the head. And it, and it's about everything outdoors. We just get the most passionate about turkeys and, you know, deer and fishing and some of the stuff we're talking about. But it's all of God's wonders. It's just incredible. I, in a different way, I've never experienced it like we did in Costa Rica. Just an incredible, beautiful Country flowers, nuts, trees, you know, plants of all kind of beautiful tropical stuff just everywhere. In mountains, you're fishing right offshore and you're looking at mountains while you're fishing. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you remember who kind of introduced you to the outdoors? Do you remember any of that? My dad, my dad loved the outdoors and uh, my grandfather, my grandfather was a red breast fisherman. Wow. And he loved to to fish for red breast. He fished in the Oak Muggy River. He was from Georgia, McCray, Georgia. Wow. And to them, and I'm just a little kid, to hear them talk it, to me it became bigger than life. You know, I, I'm in my own mind, I'm embellishing everything that they're saying, but, you know, my dad was my hero and uh, my, my grandfather was so special. And to hear them talking about, yeah, that old coon dog down there, and man, coon hunting became a big deal to me, you know, because that was a that was bigger than life. Mm-hmm. And so my my granddad started talking about sculling that old old hulled out cypress boat catching red breast, and to me, fishing became bigger than life. So I just got hooked on uh, hunting and fishing through the eyes of my dad and my granddad. So red breast is a is a type of brim that's that's found over in in Georgia. It's real popular. That 
But, but I don't think they're in a lot of places, though. No, they're basically South Carolina, uh, maybe a few in some places in North Carolina, but pretty much South Carolina down to Florida. Wow. And uh, Alabama, you got them uh, probably in Mississippi. But uh, Alabama's a good state. Georgia's the best state for Redbreast. That's yeah. where the wow. mega center for – So. Uh, you know we we've done we've had you on several times and and might, might I point out that you guys have this relationship where you don't have to say a lot of words. Good for you because we have to get a lot of words from Ty. <laughs> Toxie talks to us a lot. Now, good for you for not having to you know. No, he can he can out he can outflank me. I won't even try. <laughs> so, but what I what I wanted to, was just kind of hit me there. You've been to the top of the mountain, so to speak in the outdoor world, you, especially in the fishing side of things. You've been to the top. But when you're standing there on that stage and you've – do you think back to your dad and your grandfather and those red breasts and uh, does that kind of – those emotions flow back through you? Um, a competitive fishing is a whole different world, and it tries every nerve and and every sense that you have in your body. And it's it's a very emotional – you're just so stressed. There's so much pressure in there. And, and a lot of it's self-induced. The more you expect out of yourself, the more pressure you put yourself under. And it, you're when you're on that stage and when the, when, when you're at that weigh-in, you're in such a fog because you have already fished your guts out. You've given it everything you have. People used to think I was crazy, and, and I've never really ever told this before. But I would ride down the lake in a tournament, and I'd, I'd start crying. My emotions, I was so intense and so determined that I couldn't contain my emotions. I mean, I was just, you wanted it so bad, and you, you wanted to have everything just perfectly in line, and you're rolling through your mind, and you're so intense that your emotions, sometimes you just let it out. I have partners over there look at me like, well, it's a weird. He's <laughs> driving the boat, crying. What is wrong with this guy? You know, and so it's hard to describe. It's when you get back and all of that's over with that you start reflecting the values. But when you're in that moment, it, it, the adrenaline and the pressure, you're just kind of in a fog. You know, even Kevin, others. It's not. It's it's different athletically, but it's no different than. You know, a top, top, you know, pro football player going for the Super Bowl ring. or It, it literally is like that now and uh, has been for whatever, I guess, 30-something years. The, uh, the Bassmaster Classic talks, you know, a lot of people don't understand that. But for me, I grew up poor, and uh, it's a life changer financially. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it changed my life. I, I went from being in need and want uh, uh, to, to – to achieving beyond what I ever dreamt I would have the opportunity to do. And it's a life-changing event. And there's only going to be one winner, and there's only one a year, and you got 15,000 people wanting to be where you are. Mm -hmm. And for you to actually pull it off and win, and it's a huge deal mm -hmm. that may not be to the rest of the world, but to that that group of people that are involved in that to make it happen, 
It is such a big deal, and to actually make it happen, it's way bigger than the Super Bowl because the Super Bowl's got lots and lots of people, and there's a lot of factors in its teams. This is a solo sport, man. You're on your own. You don't have any teams. You don't have any contracts. You don't have any revenue. This is your one chance to get up there and make it. And if you win, you make it. If you don't, you're probably not going to. And so it's a life-changing Event. The year they, that they set the stage in the early days, the pioneers of that sport, because the 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 emotion from a winner in these days. Now, some of them are pretty young, talented, but the winner today and what it what it means, you know, it is. We just say the word Super Bowl because it's like the biggest thing in athletic sports, probably. But. You look at the what that emotion he's talking about and how much work and how much, and then you see it just pouring out of the every single year whoever wins is just overwhelmed and actually you know even if they've won it before it's pretty cool because the whole origins of the sport created that emotion and what's going on today in competitive fishing it's, and it's and it's given a you know there's more than one tournament trail there's a bunch of them now, there's oh, yeah. maybe one or two three big ones but there's stuff you can tell us about other species besides bass yeah people are making a living and feeding their family with you know tournament fishing yeah, these uh, offshore tournaments are insane. Yeah, they are, and that's that's a different than just like kind of feeding your family. That's over the top, but still, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very much. It's yeah. so vast today from the origins of tournament fishing. So, Hank, the year you won the Bassmaster Classic, it, you won it by just a couple of ounces. What what's the story with that? <laughs> that was a great tournament. I won it the first time uh, in 1979, and 10 years later, I won it the second time in 1989. And in 89, uh, the first time, it was kind of a runaway. I let it from start to finish. I didn't even have to catch fish the last day to win. So it was it was no pressure. It was just, man. It, it, but then the last tournament in 89 that I won, man, it was a pressure cooker because I had the chance to win it. And I, I messed up. I messed up that second day. And I made a very bad mental decision. And it put me so far behind, it was pretty much out of reach. Uh, no one thought and no one had ever come from way back. Uh, I was in seventh place going in the last day, wow. 10 pounds plus out on a river that don't produce many big stringers at all. So the odds of coming back were pretty slim. And so uh, the last day I caught the biggest string of the tournament and uh, – I ended up uh, winning, but the the real story behind that whole thing is old Jim Bitter, uh, who's a great fisherman and a great guy. Uh, Jim, uh, he led the tournament, and uh, the last day he caught a fish and put it on uh, put it on his measuring board, and uh, it was a keeper. And he went to turn around, and put it in live well, and it slipped out of his hand, jumped back in the lake. <laughs> so wow. it cost him, and it paid off big for me. And I used to tease about that. I'd, I'd say that, you know, everybody brags on me for catching the biggest string of the tournament, but that wasn't the smartest thing I did. The smartest thing I did was getting up at 4 a.m. and going to the boatyard and putting graphite oil on Jim Bitter's measures. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you find that out? Was it after you won he told you? 
uh, Tim Tucker was his outdoor rider, and Tim Tucker told me, he said, boy, Jim lost one overboard, but I don't think he's got any problem. He's far enough ahead, and he said, I've talked to everybody. I think Jim's going to win. And I said, well, how much weight does Jim have? And he told me, I said, well, Tim, that could be a problem because I think I got about 14 and a half pounds. He said, no way. I said, no, I really do. <laughs> wow. And so I knew then he was telling the truth, and then he finally figured out I was. So he said, oh, this thing's going to be within ounces. Wow. What a great song. <laughs> and it was the right way. Wow. That's amazing. So have you ever had a conversation with Jim Bitter about that? He has never gotten over that. I did a <laughs> seminar with him. I wonder why. And uh, he, he, two years later, I made that little joke about the graphite oil. He didn't see any humor in that <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, so what we want to talk about today is uh, is improving the fishability of a, a, a a pond or a lake. or it could be if yeah. you're on a reservoir somewhere yeah. yes. you improve it around your fishing yeah. dock or something and want it to relate to everybody yeah you know? that's right. right that's right and so look you if i if i as i understand it you advise people about building ponds and you know from when they start at scratch here's where i'd put structure and what i'd put in and so let's get let's pick your brain a little bit about what what are some of the things you feel like you gotta have and let's talk about building the pond and let's talk about if one's already existing things that you can do you know a lot of people are looking to to have structure that's uh that's enticing that looks good standing timber big brush piles beaver huts those sorts of things and I tell people all the time, if, if you're really building this lake and you want to share this and you got kids and people that are, are that you want to share with, rock piles are a lot easier to fish than brush piles. You, you put a brush pile in that goes from the bottom of the lake to the surface, that fish can suspend anywhere in that brush pile. And you've got to be a pretty good fisherman under certain conditions to finesse and work and, 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 and catch that fish out of that brush pile. But a rock pile? He's going to hang down there next to the bottom. He's always facing down, looking in that rock pile. And you run a little crankbait or a bait that you don't have to finesse quite so much. And you can be a lot more successful fishing a rock pile than a brush pile. Hmm. So I try to encourage people to put way more rock piles uh, in, in structure in the lake than big brush piles. Big brush piles are really hard to fish. Well, then you got to get the fish out of it when you do. Uh, it's another problem. You're hmm. exactly right. So it's a uh, it's a whole lot of these canes. You know, we have a lot of canes in the south, and canes are a good thing to put in a lake because you can get a fish through it. Where a cedar bush, once he wraps up in that cedar bush or a cypress tree, you're you're done. Mm -hmm. But uh, you can snake him out of those canes. So structure is so important, though. So those rock piles, you're probably talking about doing that when the lake's under construction. Well, no, but you can go and add them. I, I tell people all the time, uh, don't be intimidated just going out there and putting 15 old cement blocks. You get somebody that's building a house or tearing a house down, and they got a bunch of broken cement blocks, get you a wheelbarrow, put them in your pickup truck, take them out in the John boat, and, and drop a marker buoy. Always drop a marker buoy, and then pile them up around that marker buoy. With a uh, cinder block? Work good? Yeah, cinder box work great. What about depth? I mean, is it six, eight feet, or is there a specific depth? Or just, just you know, uh, fish are going to be on break lines, and yeah. if you're going to put some structure in a lake, it's always, if it if it's two foot up on the flat and it goes down to five foot, that break line would be a good place mm -hmm. to put your, your rock pile. Gotcha. 
Gosh, and you wouldn't even have to do that all at once if you've got it marked. You you know find some structure and Just put it keep out. Keep on throwing cinder blocks out there. Yeah. And you got your buddy working on his house and say, "Hey, can I have that scrap and take that and put it on it?" That's absolutely right. And where I live in the in the rural areas, there's all kinds of companies. For whatever reason, they have a lot of reject septic tanks, mm. and you can take that old septic tank, take your tractor or front end loader, and bust that thing up and go out there and put it, make your rock pile. Yeah, I've always wanted to stack concrete culverts. I've always thought that'd be such a great ambush point for yeah. fish to be able to swim back and forth in it. But Absolutely, that's perfect. And that that's the kind of thing that I promote over brush piles. But brush piles work, and they're very effective, and they're good. You just have to freshen them up every year or at least every other year. And one benefit to the the brush pile or the cedar tree or whatever is not, is not just fishability – where to fish, but also prolonging the longevity of your bait fish, and you know where they don't just wipe. That's one thing we listened to too. He, yeah. he taught me first time was like structure for fishing, but it's also for the benefit of the lake. So they just don't wipe everything out. You got to have structure, something yeah. for your little fish to hide in. Absolutely, they mm. got to have a place for hiding. Let's go back to this cane talk. What are, uh, describe how you would set that up. You know, the best way to do that is to put it in a bucket, a five-gallon bucket. Just cut your canes off, stick them in the five-gallon bucket, pour a little sacrete on them, add a little water, then uh, drop it where they stand up, you know. And that's one of the good thing you do with a five-gallon bucket. I like to put a hook on the handle uh, of a rope and mm-hmm. let it down where I make sure it's standing up. I don't want it to turn over and then just let that hook come yeah. free and you got it standing up. I got to try that. Yeah. Well, a lot of people do that with Christmas trees. <laughs> I guess or once that can, cane's in the water, it lasts a lot longer than it would be laying on the ground or something before it they're decomposes. Only good. It's amazing to me, and but they're only good for like a year. Once mm. they die out, and uh, they dominate the tournaments in the, in the summer and the fall on Lake Murray, a lake where I live. Uh, everybody's fishing cane piles with top water baits, and they'll put that cane pile out there on a flat about 10 or 12 foot of water, and they'll they'll make that cane pile tall where it comes up to about a foot or two of the surface, and they fish it with top water bait. Those fish come out of that cane, and and it dominates the tournament. Everybody that knows where the cane piles are that put them out, that's going to be who's going to contend to win. Wow. Hmm. wow. So mostly with five-gallon buckets? Most of them use five-gallon wow. buckets. And do you just cram as much? What like what size can like size of your thumb bigger cane thumb that's good uh, maybe uh, some just a little bit bigger than that but yeah probably thumb size that's a good uh, wow. measuring tool <laughs> very interesting I like yeah. it fish yeah. attracting device a fad let me go back I probably should have asked this in the beginning but the the way the current political environment is Ooh. without getting Don't into politics get wow what are we doing here <laughs> yeah I, i'm not opening up a can of worms but my question is so <laughs> if you're a, a new landowner in south carolina can you expect to be able to i mean with reasonable certainty to be able to build a, a, a pond or, or or is there some hoops you have to jump through and you may not be allowed to well, the, a can of worms is a good fish bait. So when you open up a can of worms, you've got something good to fish with. So we've opened up a can of worms, so we're going to go fishing with it. You know, when the weather hands you a lemon, make lemonade. We got all that figured out. So uh, politically, it is you must have permission from the Corps of Engineers to build a lake. And uh, they don't really police that very much. Anything under 10 acres, anything over 10 acres, you run into some red tape. 
40, 50, 60 acres, you really get under the radar screen of the core. So you got to get permission to build those lakes. And mm. it's sometimes difficult to get that. Uh, it's hard to get permits. So if you keep it under 10 acres, you're pretty much okay. But yeah. it is, uh, it shouldn't be that way, in my opinion. I think the government regulates that too much. But at the same time, there are some good regulations. If you you got a subdivision down below you and a guy decides he wants to build a 50-acre lake and there's nobody there to uh, regulate how the dam is built, you endanger other people's property and other people's lives. If you've got a creek and your neighbor downstream, uh, he's always had that free-flowing creek and all of a sudden you dam it all up and you take all that water away from his creek. That's really not fair either. So there's give and take in it, but I think right now under the current statutes of the law, they're a little too strict on that. I think we should have more freedom to build lakes that are runoff water. I totally get it about a creek. And uh, there, there is a whole lot of study that needs to go into what it takes to maintain a creek and a free flow and, and what it does to all the wildlife. So I'm, I'm all about regulations for the betterment of the people, but I, I think they're a little bit overboard right now on the regulations. So is there a formula that you use in your mind? If you wanted to build a three-acre lake pond, how much watershed – there needs to be to to maintain that three acres is there one that works for you yeah that that is a great question and the vast majority of the people that are building a lake have the wrong idea about water flow they think a lot of water flow man we got 14 springs coming in this lake there's always water running over the overflow pipe man this is a healthy lake wrong wrong you don't want that water to turn over that you can't maintain the nutrients and the fertilize. Fertilizing a lake is critically important. And if you've got turnover, if you've got so much flow with five streams and a, and a creek running in and you got water running out that overflow pipe consistently, you go broke trying to keep the nutrients mm-hmm. in that lake. It, it can't be done. So you, you don't want, I like my overflow pipe at times. If I've got a wet spring, I like to see that water running out. But, boy, in the summertime, I don't want that water running out. I want to be able to fertilize my lake, keep the nutrients in the water. And so too much too much spring or too much run into the lake is a bad deal. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Tosh built some really cool lakes. Yeah, he uh, has. One in particular that – Well, we got lucky on one of them. It's incredible. It, 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 I can't really – is something feeding that lake? Is there a uh, at the upper end of it? A little bit of a creek, but and that was built before the. But it's not anybody on someone else's property. You yeah, know? it's just it's a completely dry creek. You know, it dries completely up. And what we did was, I always wanted to have my own like Oxbow Lake. I just mm-hmm. you know we built some bass ponds and uh, we had a you know catfish pond, but mostly we you know the the bass uh, brim combination and all that goes with it. But this time I wanted to I wanted some crappie in there and you know, we used Barry and the mm-hmm. guys and uh Greg and David Bryan, who's best pond builder I've ever known. <clears throat> and they he went in and he I mean it's some sand, he had some issues. He said, Look, I cannot guarantee this lake, but I really feel good about it. I just don't want you to be misled. There's always there might be some risk and it won't anyway. They did a brilliant job with it. And we left all the trees, and there was, but there wasn't too many. So there was a bunch of, today, you know, whatever, 15, 18 years later, it's full of 
Tuper gum and cypress and a few that died that, you know, were preserved. But what happened was uh, when they stopped crappie and brim, uh, they were going to let them go and then bring bass and striped bass because the striped bass, you know, can keep your numbers down on crappie work. And, of course, they're always so conscious of the trophy bass part of it. I just wanted a crappie pond too. And so when they came back to stock the the striped bass and the bass, they tested the water, and the acidity was so high. They said, honestly, we can't. I called back, and Barry said, bring the fish back. Don't charge them anything. They won't make it. And what we put in here probably won't make it either. So, okay, wow. He said, I think it'll work itself back out, but, you know, there's a lot of decaying matter and stuff in here, and it just – we feel like it'll be healthy at some point. So, anyway – the next year, we were catching crappie, so they made it, and uh, you know, in some brim. So I was like, "Wow, they made it!" And so we actually, since it was just a you know an open situation, that I knew the Knoxville River could actually flood it at some times if it got had to get really, really high to do it. Uh, we actually caught some bass up at the the bigger you know the, the bigger mm-hmm. lake up there on the hill, and the boys were like you know, 12, 14 years old, and we had a little aerator, and we started taking bass we needed to take out of the other lake. And we probably stocked. This is the one we're talking about. It's about a 25-acre lake. And we probably put 50 or 60 bass in it, say a pound or three pounds. And Bobby's fished it since then. It's crazy. Yeah, I don't know how many years went by. He came back uh, after that about three years, and we were just so vibrant. And there was plenty of crappie, but there weren't too many, and we're catching bass like crazy. It was just beautiful, just like I've always dreamed of having, just like a natural oxbow lake. So they shocked it. He said, you've actually got some wild species, and there's a few gar, there's some grinnel. He said, all that's helping you keep it in balance. Actually, Hmm. I kind of like what it turned out. You're lucky. But that's how we ended up having that one. I just wanted one that was kind of, let's just call it all natural. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, so those bowfin grinnel that are in there. Did, did they were they a result of the river flooding it? I think be. they lived in the mud. My my opinion is uh. the river has gotten in there maybe twice in eighteen years. Yeah. So they were in there before the river ever got in there. So I think they were. They you you can tell me more about them than I know. I understand they can live in wet mud for a pretty good while. Long time. We had a pond that they had for ducks. <clears throat> And uh, they had a big lake, and they had wood duck houses on it. And uh, so they would take that lake and open the gate and flood the cornfield down below. And uh, the farmer came down there one day and said, you know, these duck houses shouldn't even be here. He said, the minute these little ducks hit the water, he said, these, there's some fish in there eating them. Well, we figured out real quick it was bowfin. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, you, you need to drain this lake, completely drain it. And so they drained the lake and left it, pretty much started in the spring draining, and they left that thing. It it was no water in July. I mean, none, zero, bone dry. So they filled that thing back up with some rain in September because they're going to need to flood the duck pond in in November. So the lake fills back up. Next year, farmer says, hey, fish are back in there. (laughs) Fish can't be in there. No way the fish can be in there. We we drained that lake and it set dry. He said, "I know somebody's come back and put fish in it because I'm telling you, I saw them eating those little ducks." So you go in there and throw a spinnerbait and you catch a bowfin that weigh eight pounds. Yep. Mm. 
Well, that lake was dry. How did they? So they survived. We talked to the biologists that, oh, no, they buried up in that mud, and they survived two hot summer months living in the mud. <laughs> yep. That's amazing. You yeah, know, that, that is blew amazing. my mind. But that's, the biologists swear that's what exactly what happened. Hmm. Wow. Lanny, I know you're thinking about the – you're managing a pond now with some algae, some uh, – Yeah, start, starting to work on it. Yeah, yeah so – Lanny's kind of on a on a project that's uh, a, a reservoir that's being used to irrigate some crops, but it hadn't really been managed and had never been managed. No, no. I, I, can, it's, I know it's been there shoot thirty long, something years. Yeah, I bet it's time. older than that, and it was built for irrigation, but you know just kind of left its own devices. It had been stocked with a little bit of everything, but mm-hmm. no vegetative work has been done or fertilization to help manage that. So. It's got a pretty rich population of fish in it, but yeah. if something's not done, they're going to lose it. We're so, going to put some rock piles in that thing. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And some cane, but some five-gallon cane things. He's got a lot of uh, aquatic weeds. He's yeah, got a coontail and fibrous algae. Some of that's good. I like coontail. Fine. I don't want it to take over, but uh, I highly men- uh, recommend grass carp. Yes. I, I don't yes. like chemicals. I hate to use them. Sometimes you have to. Mm-hmm. And I've been in the situation where you absolutely had to, but I much, much prefer uh, managing the, the undesirable uh, aquatic growth with white amora or or yeah, grass. I, there's one honestly, out there. Yeah, hmm. there's there is a grass. Oh, there's one giant one. I, we yeah, call him. We call him Biggie. One, yeah, but one, <laughs> one, one, one like, you know, my they, kids they swim with us, him. They put him in there about about a pound or so, and they say, look, they just do an incredible job. And I for five years though. Yeah, we had a, a two year old car weighed twenty pounds. Mm-hmm. Seriously, they grew that fast, and they keep saying, well, they get old and lazy. But I was what I was going to comment. They've never stocked one that didn't keep a lake cleaned up for me. Yeah, even problem lakes. So. They keep eating, even into when they get and, bigger. And it's not what, 10 to 12 fish per acre, I think, what you're supposed to yeah, put in maybe. something like that. Like that no more that's than probably that. pretty close. Mm-hmm. Depends on uh, – you You can have a weed problem that requires 15, more 16 per yeah. acre. But really and truly, when they do get over 20 pounds, they're not as productive. They're eating machines when they're 8, 9, 10, mm-hmm. 11, 12 pounds. But when they get 20 pounds, they just sit there and suck plankton. They get fat and lazy. Man, so there's you're going to need so some serious help at oh, yeah. first. Always. However, you know, some people even have these big grapples and drag stuff out of the lake yeah. to give you some openings. But if it shuts it down, I mean, you, you know, you could lose the lake and all. Yeah. But those grass cart, once they knock it back so hard and the lake's clean again, it doesn't take that much for That's them to right. keep it clean to maintain. again. That's right. So right. I've just never, I've never seen my biggest only only problem. I love the grass cart, but feeding your brim, they will, boy, they'll eat you out of house and home. <laughs> they the brim feeders, they learn quick about <laughs> brim feeding. So you got to figure out how to do something about that. Yeah, so it's going to be a fun project. We're going to get started on it pretty soon. So yeah, when are y'all spraying? Uh, just as quick as possible, you know. So we got some, we got some chafing sinister sprayer in, so we're going to get out there and yeah, uh, rob our mustachioed podcaster, and I'll get out there and knock some stuff out. So we're just going to do it a little bit at a time because yes. it's a big lake. No, and you don't want yeah, they don't want we, you, we don't want too much chemical. I know right, there's some pretty safe ones. There's some better than others. Yeah. You don't want that much decaying matter at one time, right? Right, exactly. So just knock some holes out for the benefit. And of the what fish. we're hoping too is we're going to d- treat the more deep areas. And I think if if we if we need to if they need to irrigate this uh, summer, 
uh, he said it'll draw the lake down and maybe kill some of the algae. So we'll come back in next spring with our early fertilization program, hopefully keep it uh, you better You better get it knocked back first. I'm yeah. telling you, that grass carp. What's interesting is we were there this weekend. It looks like the lake has a bloom in it now. I was talking about how clear it was. Now it's it's got a, a little bit of a bloom to it. When you say, Rob? Yeah. Yeah, well, it was really clear like when we were there. Yeah. We went back another week following. And it's got and more of a green. And it's a lot dingier. Yeah. Can yeah. That can well. wipe your fish out. That yeah. is really important to keep your pond fertilized. Yeah. I like, there's a rule of thumb for me. I like to be able to stick my arm in up to my elbow, and if I can count my fingers clearly, I'm going to start fertilizing. Well, you can lay at the bottom of this lake and yeah. see no, yourself. That's why the weeds are so bad. Yeah, so, well, so that's, that'll cost you your fish. Tell people what fertilizing does. In, in your yeah, words, explain plus. that whole process. Well, one thing it does, it taints the water. It it darkens the water. It gives nutrients and fertilizes. It feeds the plankton. There's two kinds of plankton. There's an aquatic plankton and, and there's a marine plankton. Aquatic plankton is very, very, very important, and you're feeding it with fertilization. One thing we Toxie was talking about when he built the Oxbow Lake, and they said he got lucky because they had some different fish in there to help keep it balanced. The, the lakes are a lot like food plot fields dirt's got a lot to do with the nutrition of a lake hmm. some lakes are really healthy and full of nutrients and they have fertile water that means the the aquatic plankton is healthy and that feeds all the little fish and that keeps everything growing it is a food source to keep the bait fish for the bass and the crappie and the bluegill all thriving so it's a balance, and that's what that fertilizer does. It feeds and keeps that lake balanced where there's nutrients for all the little plankton to grow to let the brim and the bluegill and all the little small fish feed off of the nutrients. Little bitty fingerling-sized fish don't feed off of, of, of earthworms. Uh, the, the plankton in that water through the filtration of their gills gives them nutrition to live. And so a fertile lake, and when you fertilize that lake, you keep that color down for to prevent an algae bloom that can take your fish out, and you keep that lake fertile for feeding the plankton to keep the nutrition level. So you you actually don't want the sunlight to hit the bottom of the lake. No, So sir. by having that green bloom, you, that's you're preventing You're taking it. a risk. Yeah. You're taking a risk that you get an algae bloom that'll kill all your fish. If you look at a... Like it's a good analogy to always with the pyramid. Some, but it's literally if the, you're looking at a pyramid, and the top of that tip top of that pyramid is a 12 pound bass or whatever you want bigger. Actually, you grow them. The bottom, the the foundation supporting all of it is all of the stuff he's talking about, all the little algae and the little teeny the mosquito fish and all the little tiny minnows that feed the next phase of fish. And a lot of this is just the fry from the brim because. If you've got the right balance, you've got enough brim that when those bass spawn, man, they just gorge. Well, you know, think about the size, how fast those little brim can grow and get bigger and be more nutritious. I mean, it just, it's like, it's that important. What happens if you pull the bottom of the pyramid, the whole thing's about to collapse. It is literally the bottom of that pyramid for the whole lake. Yeah. And a lot of people get confused because they say, well, boy, that mountain stream is real productive. There's a lot of good trout in that water. Or you go into the Ozark Mountains and you look at all these beautiful Table Rock and Beaver Lake and all these beautiful crystal clear lakes. They're moving. That water's moving. You put it in a small acreage where it doesn't move, there's where you're in danger from the algae. But as long as you got that river flowing and you got current, you're good. 
But when you put it in a small lake and it's contained and it doesn't move, then there's where you run the risk of the bloom. So you can't compare it to a clear mountain stream or an Ozark Lake or Lake Mead or yeah, wherever. Right. Different kind of fish. Too. Yeah, Different. and even water temperature has an effect there on some of that as well. Absolutely. Well, you got you got a contained area. It could be a five-acre, three-acre, two-acre, ten-acre, whatever. All these just literally, I guess, millions of farm ponds in the United States. It's a huge thing to a lot of families. But you've got a contained area, so it's not like a – I mean, you can forget about open water, you know, rivers, streams, big lakes and stuff. They manage yourself to some degree, but you've got to, you've got to somehow work that balance in a contained spot. And of course, I think they'll tell you the bigger it is, the easier it may help manage itself. But especially if you're going to, you can have a ton of fun in a small pond, but you've got to, Figure out, you know, a little bit of help figuring out what's the balance I'm looking for and then keep that balance. If you keep that balance, it could be incredible. It doesn't have to be big. I can remember fishing at Monkle Bud's when he had a lot of cows and the water was always a dingy green yeah, and healthy yeah. and there was a bunch of structure and trees and stuff in it. And we just caught all kind of big bass out of it. Yeah, golf courses are the same yeah. way. Oh, I, mean, yeah. I've ne- I mean, I love to go fish a golf course at some point. <laughs> he does. So let me ask you this. So, so if a guy had a cabin on Smith Lake, uh, and he's got a pier going out. There are things that he can do underneath that pier out in front of his house. Absolutely, to, to, absolutely. Canes around the pilings, uh, uh, cement blocks at the end of the dock. Uh, different lakes have different regulations. Different states have different regulations. So you have to check what they are. Some won't let you add any structure to a lake, and some that, that's okay. So you have to check on your regulations for your state and your lake but rock piles are a good thing to put at a dock and not many people do that at all so as a pro fisherman you probably knew where some of those good docks uh, I know were like where that. there's a few well, so <laughs> if you pulled up to a dock to fish it and a little old lady comes out there with it and she's looking at you like would you back off or would you fish or <laughs> well, not? depends on the circumstances i will tell you a funny story i was at the st john's river in florida and uh, those people get really, really bent out of shape when you fish the canals. And uh, we're, we're down there competing for a tournament, and there's a lot of bass bedding in the canals. And uh, it's public water, but they don't feel like it's public water. They feel like it's their canal. And if uh, they have a half acre or 100 feet of, of frontage on that canal, that's their 100 feet. And there was a little patch of lily pads, and there was a really big bass spawning by this lily pad. And uh, so every day I would come in and fish it, and this woman was just having a fit, man. She'd just go crazy. You have no right to be in your, your trespassing. I'm calling the law. And, and I just I'm, I, I just tune out, you know, and I'm, I'm trying, and I'm watching that bass, you know, and she's up there running up down the bank screaming. And, and uh, finally, the last day I was in there, I said, ma'am, this is public water, and you can't stop me from fishing here she said no and you can't stop me from spraying you with my garden hose so she got the hose out there and she's <laughs> me down and i really believe that all that water that was hitting the water blocked that fish from seeing me and i caught it oh yeah <laughs> so i'm soaking wet but i caught this bass i put it in line with it she's going ballistic and i just said thank you ma'am thank you ma'am I, right. so, uh, I guess there's different ways to handle it if i was fishing for fun i'd probably I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably fish. (laughs) You know, you got to hold your ground. She's honest. And uh, I I tell people all the time, they say, you shouldn't be fishing this, my my dock. And I say, well, I wouldn't be fishing your dock had you not built your dock 
in We the People's Water and We the People's Bass have swam under We the People's Water and got under your dock. Mm -hmm. So I'm one of the We the People. I'm going to take this bass out from under your dock, and then I'll take him out and let him go in We the People's Water. (laughs) So i got to ask you, how do you feel about catching a big spawning bass and then taking it back to a weigh-in somewhere else? I'm never like that. Uh, I, I think there, here's the big thing that we don't understand. Most lakes don't need spawn. There's way more fry right. than the lake can deal with. So you taking a bass or a, a limit of bass that are full of eggs back to the weigh-in and releasing it, where that fish spawns really doesn't make any difference. The problem is not with the spawn. The problem was after you get that one fingerling out of a million that make it to 12 inches long is taking him out of the lake. There's the problem. So, mm-hmm. but I never have felt good about that. I, uh, the northern part of the world, they have a bass season to protect the spawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada, uh, New York, I just came back from the Thousand Islands and they have bass season. And it usually comes in at the end of the spawn because they don't like that either. Hmm. So yeah. there's pros and cons. They have a, they have Never a great knew that. I have if you took a fish back, <laughs> weighed it. Of course, you're taking a live well, weighed it, and you know, release it. The fish is going to live in a normal life, you think, after that. Would you just lose the one year of spawn from the stress? You may not lose it at all. Right. But it and, would probably spawn the next year. You would only lose that one year if you did lose anything. But right? it would probably go somewhere else and spawn, and I've actually seen that. Let me tell you, there was a lot of controversy, and Ray Scott became very, very offended. And there were several universities, and and uh, they, they, they talked about the, the fatality or the death rate after the trauma of uh and called it delayed mortality and so they said bass is flying a banner saying that uh, it's catch and release but in reality the delayed mortality is probably 80 or 90 percent well that just wow sent ray over the moon i bet it did so the university of tennessee and i may be wrong on some of these universities but i i remember for sure uh unlv i believe auburn University of Tennessee, University of North Carolina, there were several different universities that jumped on this. And they said, we're, we're going to try to document this. And so they went to all of the tournaments for a year, uh, every weigh-in. They took the fish. They monitored them. They tagged them. They took them to special locations. They released them. UNLV actually put radar transmitters wow. inside of about 20% of the fish that we called at Lake Mead. They made all that data public, and uh, UNLV says that they put transmitters in fish that were released, let's just say for hypothetical purposes, on Friday. On Saturday, those same fish were feeding. They were eating bait. Hmm. On Friday, they were back to a normal feeding. Uh, The delayed mortality uh, on Kentucky Lake, I think it was the University of Tennessee did a study. They had had uh, like 60% of those fish, those tags recorded that other anglers had caught and recorded those numbers. So all that delayed mortality, there was no validity to it. That was made up on somebody's perception. And uh, the truth of the matter, delayed mortality was very, very minimal 
they didn't document any, to be honest. Yeah, hmm. that's good. Yeah. And and you guys go to so much effort to yeah. keep your fish healthy. And then the, the tournament, the, the, they're monitoring that water. They got people like Barry Smith there that are professionals making sure that – I'm just amazed at the effort that goes. And, you know, most of the states now, and some of it is different uh, tourists, uh, chamber of commerce and uh, Department of Tourism for different states, but they'll actually have pontoon boats. And uh, they they take these fish from the weigh-ins. They put them in a big tank. Uh, they put a chemical in there that restores the uh, the the slime that uh, the natural slime that protects the fish. And uh, they put them in that tank, leave them a period of time, put them on a pontoon boat, and distribute them in different parts of the lake. And they're so they're not all released right there where the weigh-in takes place. Yeah, yeah. Dudley, you got something? Yeah. Um, I, I really like fishing for panfish, and uh, Lanny and some others have been working out at this lake we've got on our lease, and we're wanting to target it more towards the young crowd that's going to be fishing out there. That's right. Um, is is there any uh, differences we need to do? You know, a, a lot of the stuff you read seems to be more towards trophy bass fishing. Uh, is there a way that you can have almost the best of both worlds and, and focus more on growing big bluegill and Absolutely. stuff like that. Absolutely. And Toxie talked about that just a minute ago with the white more carp eating all the pellets. But a feeder, a feeder with high-protein fish pellets uh, is awesome to grow big bluegill and get healthy bluegill and right. congregate them in an area that these kids will have a better chance of catching them. And let me just tell you, I, it, I cannot think of any fish that eats as good or better at, at, as at those fish. <laughs> fed brute uh copper nose bluegills mm-hmm. it's humble that's the best eating fish I'm when you get them big that. enough too they're they're unbelievable but you talk about good i mean i love crappie i love walleye i love river catfish i love all these saltwater species there's so many great fish but if you have a hard time beating those bluegills mm-hmm. with the bone in yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't yeah. Fail. 100%. i love with the bone in they're awesome yeah they are so good they are so I wanted to ask, you know, while we're talking about catch and release has been such a big part of what the, the, your career, and rightly so. It's just a great program that caught on. But when we kind of shift gears and talk about ponds, boy, a guy can really shoot himself in the foot if he doesn't keep enough fish. And can you talk about that? That's a the bit? biggest challenge of balancing a pond. It's the most difficult job. It's a fun job, but you got to take them out. And it, it takes a lot of harvest. If you start seeing skinny bass, bass with concave bellies, get them out of there. Man, you got to take them out and take them out and take them out. And they say, well, how long and how many should I take out? Keep taking them out until you start seeing fat bass. Hmm. keep taking them out till you start seeing fat fish and that can work on bluegill you can get a lake it's so so many bluegill and not enough nutrients to support it and all of a sudden you got all these little bitty guys take them out take them out get them out sane whatever you have to do to get them out of there in order to grow a healthy lake so that that's a big part and i wanted to say this while i go because we talk about ponds Ray Scott told me this a long, long time ago, and he said, I'm going to tell you something that will stagger your mind. We're talking about the growth of bass boats. We're talking about bow mount troll motors. We're talking about all the innovation in electronics and rods and reels. Do you know how many millions of fishermen there are in America? And he read the number off, uh, uh, 20 million, 28 million, whatever the number was. And he said, do you know that only 30% of them will ever fish in public waters? Huh. Hmm. I said, what? He said, no, I'm telling you. Only 30% of these 28 million people 
will fish in public waters. They fish in farm ponds. Wow. They fish in private lakes. The Hmm. vast majority of fishing today is done in ponds, Hmm. private lakes. What a great thing in today's world to, I mean, the sustainability lifestyle and all we're getting to today and people planting more and more gardens and foraging for stuff like Dudley's great at it. You know, our buddy Michael Hunter, there's just so many. I mean, have your own pond. I mean, the best thing you do if you're trying to grow these bass is keep a bunch of the whatever, 12, 14-inch and under. I mean, you you just about can't keep too many of those once you – I mean, there's a science to it more than me just rambling right here. But what a great nutritional thing for your family in today's world, and you know what's going on there. I mean, there's such an unbelievable – resource for this whole nation in all these farm ponds. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's so many of them. We forgot to go to the grocery. Well, let's go catch a couple fillets. Absolutely. No Hank, help me here. So I love bass. And I love trying to catch a big bass. You know, I want to get one over 10. Mr. Trophy. Lanny over here, if he catches a seven pounder, he's going to take it home and eat it. And it makes me crazy. <laughs> Not in my pond, he doesn't. Uh, yeah, I'm on those 10 to 14 inches now. But I did hear you mention, did you say you had a catfish pond that I'm not aware of? Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't think I said anything. Lanny needs to have the air let out of his tires. <laughs> <laughs> and every time he keeps a bass over five pounds uh, to eat, uh, you need to let air out of all four of his tires. Yeah, that's He's good. poking fun. <laughs> that's a good in, idea. In enough place. Let me tell you, let, let's talk about just a life lesson. And we're talking about farm ponds and putting structure in and catching fish and catching bluegill and making it for the kids you know we all as parents as grandparents we're trying to instill values in our kids and a lot of times we'll be driving them to school and we're trying to tell them don't do drugs don't do this and we're preaching to them at a time that they're not real conducive to listening they got they're occupied you're rushed you're trying to force feed let me tell you to break all the barriers take them down to the pond on a quiet day sit down let nature bring you to all with all the big blue heron and the Mm -hmm. beautiful things that God has to offer us in nature. Let the environment get to the point that you can communicate. They're talking to you. You're talking to them. Don't talk down on them. Don't school them. Just teach them, teach them about life. And it is an environment that's conducive to communicating. And the biggest problem we have, I have as a grandparent is figuring out how to communicate. My kids are listening to music that I would have never dreamt they would have listened to. They're, they're exposed to things that I never thought would ever happen in America. And it's a political environment that is out of control. And man, I'm trying to force them into listening to my views. Let me get to the bank of the river to the farm pond, let me break down all those barriers and let me listen to what they have. Let me communicate some values into my children. And if we would all just sit back and look at the value that we have in that simple little farm pond, it's way bigger than what we're making it out to be. It can be a, it can be a resource that can save your kids. It might keep a kid off of drugs. Mm-hmm. It might. It, it's so much there, and we got to look at it and and paint with a broader brush than just catching a fish. It's so much more to it. Well, well said, Amen. Yeah. As it, what else can you say? Now you've heard me say it. 
you know, of course, real estate is a big thing. And just land, not necessarily like people buying land. Well, I mean, people own land already. And what I say all the time, what's, they ask advice, that's like the first thing I would do. If I had a place that I owned or I had a place that I bought or I had a place I inherited, whatever, the first thing I would do was have a pond or build a pond. But that would be my number one priority because of what you said in, is so much deeper than I'm communicating. But you can do it. You know, if you, you have a place and maybe it's not a real big place, so what? You have a place that's just as important as somebody else's big place. And you want to share it with people. That's the great gift in life of all this stuff. Well, a pond you can share. I mean, if you have kids, you could have the Sunday school class out there. You could have, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, the kindergarten class. You could have a little, you know, kids fishing. Tar- you could have all the, and honestly, it's probably better for the lake anyway. You can't have everybody out there shooting deer. And you sh- Hank's not going to have anybody out there shooting turkeys, <laughs> and neither am I. I mean, <laughs> Both of y'all are dead on with that. I mean, the, I think the best conversations I've had with my kids that I felt like they actually listened to was either when we were outdoors or when we were in the vehicle on the way there back. 100%. Yeah, At, that, that is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Listening to you, I can remember having when being very young and having conversations with my dad, but then they would turn, eventually it would, become of if you throw in that tree one more time <laughs> my uncle bud used to say i was squirrel fishing <laughs> oh yeah you ain't nothing but a squirrel fishing <laughs> where'd you hunting lodge that's, that's pretty good oh, that's so uh look i've got a couple more questions and and what this is going just going so good we're enjoying talking to you but do you think about if you've got a lake and you're helping somebody manage it, do you talk to them about managing the fishing pressure so that somebody's not out there all the time? Because it, it, it gets tough to catch them sometimes. It is. And, and I, I tell people, and I, keep, I hate to keep referring to Ray. I guess he's such a big part of my life, I don't realize it. But uh, I, Ray called me one day, and he he put out a video, and it's available it's still today. It's called Great Small Waters, and how you can improve a uh, an existing lake or how you can add structure to a lake that you're currently building. And it, it was a, and he wanted to promote it. So his lake's pretty awesome, and it's in Montgomery or Pitlala. And uh, he said, I want you to come down and fish my lake. And uh, I said, I'll come, Ray, because I know how Ray is. I said, I'll come, Ray, if you promise me you will not let one person fish it for the next month. He said, well, I ain't going. I said, no, 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 no. I know it's your opinion. It's not going to hurt anything. But I know what it can be like if no one's on it for a month. So if you'll promise me that, I'm going to pencil it down and I'll come and we'll do a show. And we'll promote your video, Great Small Waters. He said, okay, I promise you. So about a week before, he said, hey, Hank, Orlando called me, and he's in a bind, and he needs to shoot a show, uh, and, and I'm going to let him come down. For, I said, no, Ray, I'm not coming. I'm canceling. Take me <laughs> off the calendar. I said, you let Orlando come the day we're finished. He said, well, can you come a day early? I said, I can. I can. I'll come a day early. So we went down and we fished, and literally the first day we caught about 120 bass. <laughs> Ray know. caught one and weighed 13 pounds. And I've just did a, uh, I'm doing a YouTube series now called Rewind, where we look back, and that just aired at Ray's anniversary death at the Bassmaster Classic. We rewound it and then we played it on May the 11th uh, last year on May the 11th when Ray passed away. But nevertheless, we fished. 
we caught like 120. We went out the next morning. We did a few cutaways and we fished again. We caught about 16 or 17. Orlando came the next day and caught eight bass all day long. <laughs> there it is right there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's how bad it shut that lake. That's a 78 acre lake. And that's how bad it shut it down. Wow. So if you're a guy and you own a small pond, if you own a five-acre lake, how do you manage that pressure? What do you let, tell people? Let somebody fish it once a week, once a week, and uh, not not overfish it. And if you see that that's shutting them down, back it off to every 10 days. If that's shutting them down, back it off to every two weeks. you got to keep it in perspective. Now, that's bass. Your, your pan fish, they're not going to shut down that easy. So you can fish it a lot more often for pan fish. And most of the time when you're involving children and your family, it's a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to be fishing for bass. Somebody's going to be fishing for catfish. Somebody's going to go to it. Because the family's more important than the fish. Yeah. Somebody's going to be throwing a stick to their dog. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. My dog's going to jump in after the first bass. (laughs) Lanny, you got another one? Uh, Questions? Yeah. Always about fishing. Um, Any, you know, you described to me years ago um, how those bass um, are underwater, and it's almost like, I guess you put yourself in the bass's shoes in order to catch them. Um, and you made a reference to, it's like that bass is sitting in a tree stand in that brush pile. Can you revisit that and talk about, you know, I guess what would trigger a fish to bite more than anything else? Well, we always thought that you enticed a fish into biting. We always thought that. That that was our whole method. My dad taught me, you make that little minnow look like a wounded minnow and make it look easy for him, and you entice him in, uh, coming up and, and eating the bait. Well, then there was a guy named D. Thomas from California. He came out, and he started the flipping technique. Mm-hmm. And when there was a real bad cold front, when no one was catching fish through enticing methods, he would go out and he would get fish to react out of impulse. The fish is a lot like a snake. You drop something on his head and he's going to react to it like a rattlesnake biting. Mm-hmm. So D taught the whole world that you could catch fish with a whole different method rather than enticing them through the flipping technique. And that was to getting them to react to your bait out of impulse. So we all built on that, whether mm-hmm. it's fishing a spinnerbait, whether it's bumping a jig off of a log or a piling on a boat dock, trying to trigger that strike to get mm-hmm. that fish to react out of impulse. So to go up to that brush pile, the first thing I do in my mind is I say, what tool? A fishing lure is nothing but a tool. What tool do I have that would most thoroughly fish this structure? And then when I catch that first fish or that second fish, I'm starting to put it together. Ooh, they're not on the bottom. They're suspended up. Uh, Also, I don't have the perfect tool. I can adapt and I can change. I can modify my tool to be falling a little bit slower because these fish are in the upper column rather than the bottom column of the water. So my lead's too heavy or whatever. My jig's too heavy or I need to put a bigger trailer on it to slow it down. So you adapt and you modify, but you're always trying to envision what that fish is doing, mm-hmm. and it makes a big difference in, uh, in whether you catch them or not. One, one fascinating thing is, if, and I've had the privilege to do this multiple times, you go to the Bassmaster Classic, and you're watching KVD and all these other guys go out in the morning. They all got the same lures. Here's, <laughs> here's 40 of the best fishermen in the world. They all got the same stuff. Some of them's going to catch them, and some of them's not. 
the ones that catch them are the ones that made the right envision mm-hmm. where that fish was and how to present that lure. Because this guy had the same lure at KVD did. KVD won. He was the one that put it all together and figured out exactly how to make the right presentation under the circumstances of that day. And so that's the whole method of madness. And that's what you were talking about earlier about Kevin's, his ability to process that information. Rascal's just so good. (laughs) Interesting. Lenny, I think if we bound his his hands, (laughs) it'd be like, it'd be like gagging him. People ought to watch this on YouTube and watch when Hank's explaining something, his hands are everywhere. He's good with that. Reminds He's good with it. You, when the, the time he took me on his boat and we were going, you <laughs> I know, love I this like, story. He's like, I love this. You story. know, we're gonna we're gonna keep up. No, I am not competing with you. This is silly. No, no, it's like so. He, he, he said, "Here, use this." So it was a turned out it's the first time I ever knew about it. It was a chatterbait. And he said, "Use that," and we were fishing on a guy. He was a big. He was a, a farm pond, but it was a big one. And, uh, I mean, I would say maybe 20, 30 minutes into this, it's like, and I don't want to even say anything, it's like eight or nine to two or three, and I've got that. In your favor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's picking up another rod, and he's watching me back there and giggling at me a little bit. He's (laughs) like, you know, of course he's got the boat, and he's controlling where he's at. And I'll never forget it. It was probably, I'm going to say, in that eight or nine, ten to – three or four range. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I got it. I don't even want to say anything like this. And he looked at me and said, well, and he'd been through so many, he, he was just, you know, he had so many rods laid out there, just all organized. He would just pick up another one, pick up another one. He tied it. He said, looks like I'm going to have to do something. I didn't really want to want to do, but you know, I'm going to catch fishing. So he, it, it was some, he got a jig and now I realized what he was doing. He got that jig and another hour, it was like 42 to eight or nine. <laughs> and he was the 42. I yeah. mean, just as fast as he wanted to catch them when he decided what, what it, what it would, what, what he was take. doing. That's what he's doing. And every now and then he would skip a spot and say, Hey, try right there. Boom. <laughs> catch one. But what he talked about today is what he was doing. Yeah. It was yeah. a jig. Yeah. yeah. Figuring it out. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, is every cast. (laughs) Interesting. So uh, I know you've had this question a bunch, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, So just say you've got a, you know, afternoon in June and you're you're taking the kid out out for a spin around the lake to catch a few bass. Uh, What are what are the three setups you're taking? What are the three lures and. How are you going to fish them? Uh, that's a really hard question because, again, a fishing lure is a tool based on the wind, based on uh, water. I did a seminar this past weekend, and we had uh, 20 guys, had a bunch of high school kids, and uh, did a seminar, and then we went out on the water and fished. And it was a 25-mile-an-hour wind, pouring rain. And uh, so we got out there, and I tied everybody's spinnerbait on. So everybody's catching fish, and we came back in, and they said, man, we did all these seminars on Cinco's and jigs and jerk baits, and, and all we did was throw a spinnerbait. Why? Well, what you going to do in a 30-mile-an-hour wind? Yeah. So you let the wind be your friend. And so you can't control a plastic worm with a, with a 3 sixteenths ounce slip weight on it in a 30-mile-an-hour wind. You can't fish a jig. You can't even think about throwing a jerk bait into a 30-mile-an-hour wind. So – everything is contingent on the water color, the temperature, the conditions. And it's just like, you got this big old snap on toolbox 
And if you got a three eighths inch uh, nut, you're gonna get a three eighths inch driver. Mm-hmm. And a half inch is not gonna do you any good. And a quarter inch is not good. You got to have the right size for the right job. Fishing is exactly the same way. So you got to just based on all the conditions, even though you're on a farm pond. Now, a plastic worm and a spinner bait are both adjustable wrenches. You can do huh. so much with them. Okay. So if you only had two baits and you're going to the pond, have you a, whether it's an inline spinner like a rooster tail or a spinner bait and have a plastic worm. You can fish that plastic worm with a lead, without a lead. You can put it on a little shaky head. You can fish it Carolina style. You can do a lot with it in that. So it's an adjustable wrench. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And that's the same way with the spinnerbait. So uh, th- those are the two baits that if I were going to the pond, I'd make sure I had. If I couldn't have nothing else, I'm going to have a plastic worm and I'm going to have a little spinner. Okay. Yeah, I think I you asked him three, didn't you? I did, but he well, said you only really need two. two, two. So okay. I'll, well, I'll uh, have a top water then, so there's my three. Yeah. <laughs> Hank, I got a lot of respect. For, we have a lot of respect for you. The, the most, way you handle the, yourself. The most. You, 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 you've got, from where I sit, and I've watched you for a long time, you've got life figured out, and you, you handle yourself in a way that I admire. You've got something figured out. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast I, I, that might be having marital problems. That might be having trouble at work. They got friends like Lanny that make them crazy. That, <laughs> can you kind of summarize without getting on off on the long thing? But just is there a verse or a chapter or something something that's impacted your life that you could share that would help people understand what kind of What's behind you a little bit? Well, there, there was so much to life. I grew up, Bobby, I grew up with a dad that was an alcoholic. He was hopeless. Uh, he went to rehab after rehab. There, uh, my grandfather said my dad was impossible after he sent him to about the fifth rehab center, and my dad would fall off the wagon the day he got home. And uh, he said, I'm going to tell you, Mo Parker, my dad's a piece of trash, and uh, the, he's impossible. And uh, my dad uh, got an invitation to go to church one Sunday morning, got saved. He came home sober, a new person. Take the word impossible and you put an H in front of it, becomes him possible. He can change your life. I was a kid with a bad attitude, all kinds of issues in my life. And I trusted in Jesus Christ. I gave him my life and he took control and everything, Bobby, is is okay. You cannot lose in this life because Jesus Christ is the future, and you have a home in heaven forever. So it doesn't matter really what happens in Washington, D.C. Do I care? Yes, I care. But does it rock my world? No, it doesn't rock my world because my hope's not in Washington, D.C., My hope's not in me. Thank goodness my hope is not in me. My hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it changed everything in my dad. I watched my dad go from a drunk to a model citizen. I am so glad that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came down out of heaven. Whether you die with a billion dollars or you die with a penny, your riches are in your heart, not in your wallet. Amen on that. Wow. Well, it's it's obvious the way you carry yourself yeah. and the, the just the, the the man that you are. It's uh, it, you believe what you you walk what you believe. Well, it ain't me; it's him. And and, and 
I'm nothing, but he's everything. Yeah. Well, you've you've certainly been impressive to watch, Mr. Parson. Golly. Unbelievable. And it's, you know, the thing that I would say, there's if there, there's so many words that I would have an adjective for him, but if you, you just saw it, it's conviction. Yeah. It's such a deep conviction. And it starts there, but it's, you know, right there with family and friends and the outdoors and the wonders of God and fishing and competing. And there, there's such a conviction in business. So good at what he does, but he has that conviction. Yeah. And that's just like something we could all learn from him uh, is when you have things, you do things that matter, do it with that conviction. Do it the right way. That's what he has taught me. He has taught me just by that example. It's just an open word. It wasn't a particular one thing. But, you know, starting with his faith and everything else, he does it with a conviction. And, you know, it just spreads joy to all other people around him, too. So, How how did you guys meet originally? (laughs) You know, Cuz set us up on the turkey hunt the first time that we really spent any time together. Yes. I had known about Toxie. I'd heard about Toxie. And my first experience was I admire, and, and, and Harold Knight is such a true friend of mine. And Harold's one of those same guys. You don't have to say nothing. Uh-huh. It's just I'm so emotionally tied to Harold Knight and his values. And he told me, he said, out of all the people I talked to, I'd rather talk to Mr. Fox about squirrel hunting than anything I've ever done. He's such a delight. Do you know Mr. Fox and Toxie? And at that time, I didn't. He said, let me tell you something. That is the model family of this industry. He said, Toxie Hayes is the real deal. He said, but better than Toxie is Mr. Fox. Amen. <laughs> and, and that, for Harold to say that, because when Harold, he's like E.F. Hutton. When Harold speaks, you better listen. Mm-hmm. He's an old country boy. And he, he's gonna he's gonna butcher the Queen's language, but his wisdom is way beyond a, a literature expert. He, he is he is very wise, and he has a heart of gold. And that's the first intro that I got to the Fox family was through Harold. Wow. You know, it was just I, it was just always the chemistry to it, and he you know he makes it easy. But there's there's a just like here. I mean, you just you know. And there's nothing wrong if you don't fit in somewhere or don't feel like that's kind of my cup of tea. That's, as I mean, he just got through talking about Jesus Christ. I mean, love everybody or try to, but there's just some things fit and some don't. And one of the things with all of our crew and with him, he could be the king of this. It's like he's sending that signal, don't take yourself so serious. Mm-hmm. I mean, he takes his life and his family, his faith more than anything seriously, but don't take yourself so serious. So it's constantly fun and kidding and practical jokes and one-liners and original humor. He said more things, just like Harold. I mean, they could write a book on these little little (laughs) sayings that they made up or just popped in their head like Bob Dixon used to be. Mm -hmm. And so there's just that chemistry, and it's you're having fun. Well, the one thing I'll say about the two, y'all, is I've heard both of you independently say, I hadn't seen him in a couple of months, but the second I see him, it's just like we. we I mean, it's it never, like you hadn't been apart at all. It, it never fades. It, 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 it that, never fades. I mean, you're. I've got others like that too. We didn't count him right there, you know. On hand, it, it doesn't. It, it's just the same. When I saw him today, it's that, you know, that unspoken word is exactly the same as when the last time I saw him. We were yeah. in camp together. 
So, Hank, at the, as we end these things, I always ask these guys, what, what did we learn? But I'm going to look at you. Did we teach you anything? Oh, absolutely. Today? Yeah, a lot, there's a lot of synergy in this room. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of genuine love and compassion for one another. And that's not a that's not a good topic among men. Men have a hard time saying, hey, I love you, buddy. I love you, buddy. I love you, buddy. Men have a really hard time with that. But adopt a love, you know, that's the way Jesus loves us. And uh, truthfully, whether we admit it or not, we need each other. Oh, yeah, we need each 100%. other. Uh, killing a turkey wouldn't be important if I didn't have toxic to tell it to. It, it wouldn't be a big deal. But when he feels the same way I do and you accomplish that, it, it's a motion that I play off of him. We need each other. Mm-hmm. It, it's mm-hmm. special to be in this room. I wish everybody listening or watching this podcast could feel what I feel in this room. It's electric. And, uh, and we need each other. And, and men, men are really, really, really weak in that area, admitting that and really facing that. You're very important to me. Each one, we, we all play a role that fulfills us. Mm-hmm. And apart from there, we don't have it. So there is so much energy in this room, and it's genuine. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a refreshing. There's a lot of fakes in America. There are a lot of fakes, but there is a group of real people, and you'll find more real people in the outdoors than any other place in the world, in my opinion. There, there is a lot of fake in society, but yep. that's my my sermon. If I'm going to be preaching, is like there's <laughs> one thing you can't fake, and that's nature. It is the real deal, regardless it of the reality. age we live in, and the political, and the electronic, and the video game, and the whatever <laughs> bad influences, and all the hate spewed everywhere. The great that's we're just trying to point people there because yeah. it's. I mean, it is the wonders of God. Yeah unbelievable but it is that place that you know i started thinking how we got to keep evolving in the ai age and oh my gosh what is that gonna mean to all the things we do in the the more you know technical or sophisticated sophisticated side of business that you have to tend it was just it gets more and more complicated than people competing just like you like an iphone every year what they do is miraculous again 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 nature never you know we're connecting people with nature and actually, that's what the world needs more of than anything, and caring for it and appreciating it. The kind of love we share hunting, you know, is bigger than the hunting. And all, that's what we're just trying to do is connect people to that. There's an army of hunting and fishing people already doing that out there, and they're bringing people all the time. But it is it is the one thing that it doesn't change. It doesn't, you know, you don't have to recreate it. We just have to help people connect to it better and better. And it's it's such a counterbalance we have got to have today, especially in this country, but everywhere. Yeah. Well, golly, we've said a lot, but there's been some really good words come out of. I, I'm today. listening, and you know, I'm dying to say this. If if you would have gathered everybody from Mossy Oak around the table when you said, "Hey, we're going to reintroduce bottomland," no one would have ever dreamt it would have had the revival and taking the superior position with all the digital capabilities and all the colors and all the new dyes and all the new material, that is a statement within itself. Mm -hmm. The outdoorsmen like nostalgia and they like real. Bottom land was birthed at the most real moment of this company. And look where it is today. It is probably your number one pattern. 
Oh, it is. And who would have ever thought that if you would have been a round table for discussion at the time that you, you re, rebirth bottom line? What a statement that is in itself. That's pretty amazing to me. That's a topic for another day. Yeah, it is. It, <laughs> it is. And it, you know, Authenticity to get, to get off the top, but it, it happened so much more organically yeah. from the outside in, from the world kind of telling us than us trying to, you know, force it in some way with some magic, you know, giant campaign or whatever, you know. It just is what it is. So. What they said to you, Toxie, and what they said to this company is we're not in about all this high-tech design. We're into you. We're a part of you. We're a part of your company. We're a part of what you stand for. We're about gamekeepers. We're about giving back. We're into conservation we support who you are, and that is your flagship, and that's how we uh, unite with you, and that's how we join your fraternity, and that's the statement that we want to make. We're wearing bottom line, and I think it's awesome. Yeah, no, I, do, I do. Yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> statement, no doubt about it. Yeah. Wow. Look, That's I don't. Topic for another day. Yeah. We can yeah. go on that one for a while. It is. <laughs> Hank, you got this great big old truck out front and a. 20 foot I'm talking ranger. about a good looking ranger out there. <laughs> what, where, what's next? Where what's happening tomorrow? Well, we're going to go up to Montgomery and then I get to go home. I got a, uh, Hank Jr.'s got his middle daughter graduating from high school. Wow. Grandkids, grand, I, you, I could have answered grandkids are involved. At yeah, some point. We, we're going up and I'll get to hang out with my grandkids, see my granddaughter graduate. Well, so. leave the boat if you don't mind for a few days. Oh, Bob, well, Bobby's, I've kid about me <laughs> in that boat. Bobby has been wipe, wiping the slobber <laughs> off his I, mouth. I went home last night, uh, and I told my wife, she was, you know, getting ready for bed, and I said, you should have seen the boat he had. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the trailer is hey, it's okay. a pretty fancy rig. I, I'm, I'm going to have to hey, look, that's a nice rig. Rig. All this is true, but he's a gear guy. Yeah. He is so particular about his gear. I mean. So I can I've seen boats before. I can only imagine he, what it's evolved to today. Well, he's the only boat. I like it a lot of boats. He's the only boat I've seen with a uh, a prop cover. He's got a little boot. Everything. Over his prop. It reflects light, and that keeps these little girls on these cell phones when you're driving through Atlanta yeah. from running over. You know, I wanted to be sure to see that. That's a great idea. Yeah, safety first. That, so that's a Ranger, right? That's a Ranger, and they've been your sponsor for since you were in a canoe. They, they, <laughs> this is their 55th anniversary, and I've owned a Ranger for 50 years. So, I, wow. I, when when they came out in uh, 1968, I was only 13 years old. Wow. So. Uh, it took me till I was 18 before I got my first one. But I pledged in my heart when I saw Blake Honeycutt in the first one ever, I would have one. No, that's cool. And uh, So I've had one now for 50 <laughs> years. Hey, I'm hey, on the Ranger boat. And what a great man. <laughs> yeah. It. Oh, no my goodness. Yeah. He's told me so many unbelievable stories about Mr. Forrest. Yeah. Mr. Forrest and Mr. Fox had the same piece of cloth. Mm. Yeah. Uh, boy, that's saying something. That's I'm it telling is. you. Yep. Forrest had made the statement one time. He said, it's no use to dream if you're not going to work. Yeah. It's no use to work if you're not going to dream. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that is that's such great. a good philosophy in life. Yeah. I will say that's one thing Daddy could do is, and still can, but it's like it'd give you 
a book of wisdom in one little short segment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> just, just like that. Yeah. And but you know, my problem is I want to listen to them. Uh, to like a whole... <laughs> yeah. Well, we know we you didn't have to say that. We all go through. Oh, that. there's no doubt. I wasn't listening. <laughs> I, I just you know say to everybody, it's a privilege and an honor to surround yourself with great people and to be a little bitty part of an incredible company that has put together a a team of people that's conservation minded. And as long as you're a part of the Mossy Oak fraternity, you're you're you've got a say in what's going to happen with our future. So we all need to unite together. And I am so proud to be just a little bitty part of this organization. And it's been cool to be here. Well, look, you're you uh, yeah. downplaying. He's a yeah. huge influence he's had on everybody. That's me right. and everybody. Yeah, I love back. And so yeah. you know, I'm speechless. The gratitude, deep deep gratitude. Yeah, everybody. Thanks. The way you represent Mossy Oak out in the marketplace, we we just want to say thanks. So, all right. I think we've uh, look. We've loved on each other enough. But you did great. We enjoyed it. I knew we would. Toxie, I'm glad you're here from your <laughs> travels. Made it back. Yeah, mm-hmm. get some rest tonight. Yeah, nod off into this mic. <laughs> <laughs> oh me, Dad. You got another question? I'm I'm good. I'm fulfilled. You, I, I love everybody. <laughs> yeah. take, take, love y'all. Take your kids fishing. Yeah. yeah take your kids fishing. Fine. Spend time with them. All right. Why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Richie. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.